you on eight. Two on eight. Okay, you're clear. Stand by for your base. Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm your host, Ross Orpit, and before we get started today, I wanted to give you guys a little update about where we're at and where we're going with the show. For two and a half years now, we've been bringing you experts to discuss educational content that you can then take with you to the streets on your next shift. Recently, we brought a frequent of the show, Will Berry, onto the team full-time to give us more of the active paramedics perspective and some more commentary and questions during the show. We as a team want to bring you more education. And so recently, we have taken to social media to bring you more educational pearls throughout the month while you await the next episode to drop. We really want these posts to be for you guys. So please respond to the posts and let us know if something was helpful or if it wasn't helpful and you want to learn something more or different. All feedback will help us grow and provide better education for you because that's ultimately why we do this. We want to bring you more education. The medics and EMTs and nurses and first responders, all pre-hospital providers taking care of patients on the front lines. We want to help you grow and learn so that you can be better equipped to do your job, which really, really matters. What you do matters. So if you want more educational content outside of these monthly episodes, check us out on Twitter at EMS underscore cast and on Instagram at EMS cast, just one word. So that's EMS underscore cast on Twitter and EMS cast on Instagram. We plan to post weekly pearls that build off of the content we talked about in our most recent episodes, as well as give you some teasers and a heads up about new episodes coming out. And if you want to follow us, please message us. Give us some feedback. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you want to see and learn more about. And if you find the content helpful, tell others. That would be a huge help to us because the listenership of you and all others is what allows us to continue bringing you educational content and will allow us to do so more frequently. All right, let's get to this month's episode where we're going to be talking about why there are new drugs with new names on the street seemingly every month. And at the very end of the episode, we'll talk about some new updates to an old drug that we're all very familiar with. Let's go. Today, I'm going to have Will Berry join me as my co-host to interview a good friend of the podcast. Hey, everybody. Will here. Thanks again, Ross, for having me on. Today, we're interviewing someone you'll hopefully recognize as having heard here before. That is the Rocky Mountain Poison Center Toxicology Fellow, the one and only Dr. Nick Matzler. Nick, welcome back to the show. We had so much fun having you on the podcast last time to talk about snakes that we just couldn't wait to have you on for more episodes. Well, I'm just so happy to be here, Ross, and uh, look forward to many more in the future. Truly, the, the real reason I wanted to have you back on the podcast today is really just because I wanted to ask you, it's it's officially October now and as we're recording this. So can I just officially stop worrying about snakes for the year? You know, the, the textbook answer is 
April to September, you have to worry about the snake. So we're, we're technically past that deadline. And as of a couple of days ago, I really thought we'd still have some room to go here with the hot weather. But of course, as it's now storming outside, uh, I think it's probably safe to say it'd be unusual uh, to see a snake bite. Okay. Thank God. Okay. All right. Truly, I'm just kidding. Uh, we're not here to talk about snakes again. If you if you want to learn more about snakes and missed Nick's episode, go back and check out episode 26, uh, released in August of this year, where we, we learned all about these slithering creatures. But we actually brought Nick on for a very different episode today, and I cannot wait to get into this. As I understand it, Nick, you're going to be talking to us about drugs of abuse. And this topic is so important as it's such a big part of what we deal with on the job, and we often take it for granted. There are certainly drugs we are very used to seeing because we, we see them all the time, but this is actually a constantly evolving field due to new synthetic chemicals of abuse that come out all the time. So teach me, Nick, what's new, what's old, what do I need to look out for and be aware of? I think that's a great lead in Ross. And, and, you know, there's a couple of things overall. So one is, I, I think we definitely should spend some time talking about drugs we see all the time. Cause I think there's sometimes some fun caveats or some, uh, interesting ways to think about some of the common drugs that we see that we don't always go to in the first line. But just as you brought up, you know, we're seeing this trend lately of these newer synthetic chemicals coming into the United States and being used fairly widespread and found in a lot of the a lot of the drugs that we get from patients or from people that have been arrested and we test. And this all comes under the guise of something called research chemicals. What happens is, is somebody takes a compound that acts on the opioid receptor. So they take a compound that if you were to take it orally or IV is going to activate that opioid receptor. And what they do is they start decorating that molecule. And what I mean by that is they take this molecule that is almost like a template that says, okay, I'm going to bind to the mu opioid receptor. And then they add like another atom to it, like a chlorine or something like that. Now, now first blush that that doesn't sound like a big deal, but when it comes to legalization, that actually is a big deal because how we currently schedule drugs and how we decide what's legal and not legal is by the molecule itself. So what I mean is that we outlaw the specific molecule fentanyl. Now, if I add another bromide or chlorine group to that molecule, it is no longer technically fentanyl. And since it's no longer technically fentanyl, is it illegal? Or is it legal and can I import it or can I use it? And that is this gray area that we've been dealing with for the last couple of decades, at least in the U.S. Congress and the DEA trying to figure out how to, how to properly schedule and enforce these kinds of rules. And so what people have been doing recently is that they import chemicals that are sold technically for research purposes only. They say on the website, this is not for human consumption. They import these chemicals and then they press them into pills or they add them to other common drugs that you see. And so what ends up happening is you end up with these chemicals that may or may not have varying effects in the body. They may do what you think they do or not. Uh, and they may be much more potent than what you're used to seeing. So a, a good example of this is something called nidazine. So nidazines is a chemical backbone. And on top of this chemical backbone, you add different flavors of molecules to it. And one in particular that we're seeing on the streets of Denver called pyro for short, because the full chemical name is N pyroladino adenidazine. So they call it pyro for short. This stuff is about 20 times more potent than fentanyl. And unfortunately, we've already had a couple of overdose deaths to this. 
And so again, where does this chemical live legally? We don't hundred percent know. There's actually a house bill that may have even been voted on by now that is essentially just a laundry list of nidazine chemicals. And they're going to vote on it and say, okay, all these chemicals, all these molecules are now illegal. And that's essentially all the bill is, is just this long list of pictures of chemical structures that's about to be voted on. In the meantime, we still see these drugs slipping their way into drugs we see on the street. So we always refer to fentanyl or street fentanyl as fentanyl, right? Like we, we always call it that we call, or sometimes we call it like the M thirties or the blue oxys, depending on what you, where you live, what type of fentanyl they have. But really these days, when we say fentanyl, we're meaning anything could be in this. It's a mu opioid analog, meaning it's going to bind to the opioid receptor and have effect. And so in your fentanyl pill, there could be fentanyl, but there could also be fentanyl. There could be this pyro substance that's even more potent. There could be methamphetamine. There could be MDMA. There could be all sorts of other binders that go into this pill. Benzos we find. Uh, and at the end of the day, you still call it fentanyl. And so when you talk about an overdose that's in front of you where somebody's friend says, hey, my buddy just took a bunch of fentanyl and now they're not breathing, they have small pupils and they're not responsive, you say, okay, I'm going to give this person naloxone, which is exactly the right first step anytime you see this opioid toxidrome. But oftentimes what happens is you might give a push or two of naloxone, you don't see good clinical effect. And so you move down your algorithm in terms of how you're going to save this person. That's absolutely the right thing to do. But what's fascinating is oftentimes people think, okay, that means it's not opioid because we tried a bunch of Narcan, it didn't do anything. When in reality, it might just be that the chemical that's in these new pills binds so tightly to the receptor that you just don't have enough Narcan to displace it. Meaning Narcan may not even work for these kinds of overdoses, even though it is an opioid toxidrome. The other really scary thing becomes that because it's a different template molecule because it doesn't look like fentanyl. If you were to try to use a fentanyl test strip to test a different product, like let's say you thought you were going to take MDMA or ecstasy, you tested it for fentanyl and it came up negative, you can still die of an opioid overdose because what was in there was actually something like pyro and nidazine as opposed to actual fentanyl. And that fentanyl test strip is only going to pick up one molecule and that's fentanyl. Nick, I'm going to ask you to bring it into the pits here for just a second because I got a lot of questions. So if I understand what you're saying correctly, um, let me try to break it down like in my paramedic brain. So there are substances out there that are basically being obtained legally, but behave the same way fentanyl or illicit opiates do. Is that correct? That's a perfect way to describe it, Will. Wow, that is scary. Um, And so... And then not only that, the so these substances, not only are they being obtained legally, they're being compounded with other illicit substances to basically create legally bought versions of some of the most potent illicit drugs on the market. You're exactly right. And even if you're an intrepid entrepreneur in the drug world and you're trying to make a product that your patients are going to enjoy, you might start cutting it with some of these other substances in order to increase the potency or to add other effects to the substance. So even though what you sell them, you say is just fentanyl or an M30 or something of the like, you might actually be giving them a cocktail of all sorts of substances aimed at addicting this person further. Wow. So back to the Narcan naloxone piece that you covered. In my time as a paramedic, I've been taught several different schools of thought. One is, you know, an opiate molecule is is one-to-one with a Narcan molecule. So like if you outnumber them, you bump them off. So you just, 
a set number of Narcan molecules and you're going to start reversing the the toxidrome of the opiates. And then other people have told me, you know, this is more maybe street wisdom. Like we didn't wake that guy up until we got four amps of Narcan in or, or you know, uh, eight milligrams of Narcan in. And everyone's got a story to back their in of one, right? And so can you go in a little bit to just Sorry to make you back up, but as we're talking about these opiates that are so incredibly potent, can you give me a down and dirty again of how Narcan works? Will, absolutely. I'd love to. And I think that's uh, it. it's really well demonstrated science, what you're doing there. You're saying, wait a minute, I'm getting one explanation of how this substance works, but then when I literally I'm giving it to patients, I'm seeing a response that doesn't make sense based on the model that you've given me. Uh, and, and you're exactly right. It's actually kind of a blend of the two things that you were talking about. So this kind of goes back to a little bit of the difference between the word potency and the word affinity. So potency is the ability for a drug to produce an effect and the magnitude of effect it might produce. So, you know, we might say, okay, like when we compare fentanyl to morphine. I think that's something most people are used to giving. I think, you know, as a paramedic, I remember giving morphine a lot and then fentanyl towards the later days of my career. But I I remember that, okay, one is dosed in milligrams and one is in micrograms. So why is that different? That that's dosed differently because of a potency issue, meaning that when I give a small amount of fentanyl, the effect that it produces when it binds to the receptor is very large. So just a tiny amount produces a profound effect, you know, and might get you all the way to respiratory depression, everything else like that, or might just be great at analgesia, depending on how you're dosing it. And, you know, sort of the, if you have a medical grade product or not, whereas morphine still does great, right? It still produces a lot of the same feelings that you get and same pain relieving you get with fentanyl, but you have to give it in much bigger doses. That's a potency issue. The other issue affinity is how tightly that molecule binds to the receptor. So fentanyl actually doesn't bind to the receptor all that tightly. Uh, it's actually really interesting. Hydromorphone or Dilaudid, as you might know it, uh, that we give in the hospital all the time, actually has a much higher binding affinity than fentanyl. So even though the potency is less, meaning I have to give a milligram of Dilaudid or half a milligram of Dilaudid to produce analgesia in a patient compared to 100 micrograms of fentanyl, the affinity, the, how tightly that binds and sits on the receptor is actually much higher in the Dilaudid than it is in the fentanyl. So if you bring this back now to the Narcan, you're exactly right. What Narcan is doing is one molecule of Narcan is trying to bind to the receptor and by binding to the receptor, knock the opioid off the receptor. So whatever's sitting there, Dilaudid, fentanyl, morphine, doesn't matter. Narcan comes and says, I really like this receptor. I can bind very tightly to it. And so even if there's opioid sitting on that receptor already, the Narcan will actually displace it. It'll kick it off. It says, "Uh uh-uh, I fit in this pocket better than you do. And by binding to it tightly, I keep you from activating it. And I don't produce the same effects. Like Narcan doesn't produce any opioid analgesia, right? No respiratory depression or anything else like that. It just occupies the receptor and that's it. It causes no other effect essentially. And so Narcan is actually extremely avid. It has a very high affinity compared to these other drugs. So when you translate that into what you see on the street, what it means is that if somebody is taking an opioid that doesn't bind very avidly, you will easily be able to displace it with Narcan. So you give a push of whatever Narcan, it kicks it off the receptor, you see that effect in the patient. But 
if the patient happens to have taken an opioid that binds with a higher affinity, you might have to shovel more and more of those molecules into the body to be able to kick that off because now they're competing more, more closely. Now those affinities are a little closer. So you do have to overwhelm it. Now it's a numbers game. Now it's not one-to-one. Now it's like, I need 10 molecules of Narcan to displace one of whatever opioids you're talking about. And in some cases, the opioids can win. In some cases with some of these research chemicals, it would be unrealistic doses of Narcan you would have to give in order to actually outcompete that. So you're exactly right. Sometimes you can give a little and displace it and you can wake a patient up. And sometimes you have to give just a dump truck load to actually make an effect. Let's say, you know, I'm, I'm trying to follow my protocol in terms of dosing my Narcan. Can my plan B be plan A harder, meaning I just keep giving more Narcan? Or are we talking about an arms race where there's going to be a new version of Narcan out that is has more affinity? That's a really good question. I don't know if we're necessarily going to see a new flavor of Narcan. At least I haven't heard of one. There are some like naltrexone, for example, which is sort of a long acting version of Narcan that is used both for opioids, but more for alcohol abstinence. Uh, naltrexone actually does bind more tightly than Narcan even does. So some of these molecules exist. The problem is naltrexone, it takes a long time for it to actually work. And so that's why it's not very practical. Uh, and it works for an incredibly long time. Its half-life is so long that it would last days and days and days. So these aren't like great drugs. Like Narcan is a perfect drug to give, but you're right. We end up in kind of this, this arms race phenomenon between how tightly something binds compared to the Narcan. I think that if you see an opioid toxidrome in front of you, meaning you see the constellation of mental status depression, small pupils, and respiratory depression, I think you can give Narcan a few good slugs. You can make sure that you have a working IV. You can make sure you've given a good few slugs. But I think the problem is, is that if you've given that already and the patient is not responding appropriately to it, the two options are either you sort of do have one of these super avid opioids that's going to outcompete you anyway and you can give everything you have on the truck but it's not going to wake them up or there's some sort of co-ingestant that is producing a very similar picture to opioids in which case the narcan isn't going to work anyway and so i think at that point is when you have to decide am i going to keep bagging a person like this or am i going to move to more advanced airway techniques and take control of the airway i think with with opiate overdoses certainly you could continue trying to give Narcan and see if on your 10th milligram you get an effect. But at the point that you've given a couple slugs and, you know, certainly if you, if you give two milligrams, they respond and then suddenly they, they develop respiratory depression again. Yeah, certainly keep giving that. But I think at the time you start moving past four milligrams of Narcan, we have another tool to fix this person's problem. The lay public may not, but we can intubate this person and you just take their airway. And that too will save their life in an opiate overdose, right? Because the problem is they're just not breathing. The problem is the respiratory depression. So if we if we can fix that for them, we can get them through this opiate overdose as, as the opiates wear off. And there are, are drugs out there like... I always think of the alpha two agonists as the same exact toxidrome as an opiate with the exception it doesn't respond to Narcan. And so when you see meiosis, respiratory depression, you're given a ton of Narcan and it doesn't respond. One of the things you should think about is the alpha two agonists like clonidine and, and did they ingest that? And, and in that case, it's really just supportive, take their airway and support them through it. I a hundred percent agree. So, all right, that's kind of the 
research chemicals and a, and a good background about them. Who's, who's making these? How are they getting here? Do you have any of that info for us? It's actually very interesting because it comes in two main flavors, at least that I see. One is we find it in what people buy off the street, meaning like, you know, when we test what they call an M30 or a blue oxy or anything like that, we test it, we find out what's in it and we say, okay, you know, whoever the drug traffickers are in this area must be adding these extra chemicals to this product in some way. The other flavor of person that we get is usually like the high school student. And this is like somebody who has read online how to... Uh, work a pill press, how to order these chemicals and what to do. And we've actually had these cases where, for example, there was one case where uh, several, several high school students all got sort of the same toxidrome from a high school party where another student had bought a substance that was similar to a benzodiazepine online as a powder. And again, this is as like a research chemical. So this 16 year old could just import this and, and have it delivered to his home and then had a pill press and pressed these into pills that he then called Zanny bars, which the kids tell me is what they call the Xanax on the street and then handed these out at a party and told everybody, yeah, man, it's, it's Xanax. And so a bunch of students took it and they all did have benzodiazepine effects, but because what was in the substance wasn't exactly Xanax, everybody had sort of unpredictable effects. So some kids just had a great time and some kids ended up in the hospital. I, I want to ask, is this happening across the country? I know that's probably impossible to answer, but I'm sure there are, there are hotter spots than others, but Listeners that download this podcast from across the country, is there anywhere that they can say, well, this isn't our problem? No, I think that's a great question, Will. This is most likely a widespread problem. Just as you said, I really don't have data to support that claim because it's so difficult to track these kinds of outbreaks right now because the molecules change all the time and what you're importing is different every time. It becomes this problem of epidemiology where we can't really track this and say, oh yes, this area seems to be worse than others. And so for right now, it is a problem that I think is probably more widespread than we know. That being said, I do not have a lot of data to back that statement up. You talked a little bit about some some examples of these chemicals and, and how they respond in the body or, or what they're similar to, but do you, do you have any other examples you can tell us? Yeah, I, I think another good example of these molecules, especially ones that we've seen, is something like flubromazolam, which is like a, an amazing name on its own. Uh, but it is a name, uh, sort of a, a street name of a benzodiazepine-like substance, hence why it's got the aslam at the end to try to make it sound similar. And that's what a lot of these benzodiazepine-like substances have at the end, is they make them sound like drugs that exist currently, but are just different. And so flubro that we've seen here has this interesting property where its half-life is very, very long and it actually peaks twice. And so you get these patients that become CNS depressed and have potentially respiratory depression and they're out of it and then they get better. And then several hours later, they get worse again with no change in intervention or anything else like this. There's like this second peak phenomenon where they get sick, they get better, and then they get sick regardless of sort of other factors. And so these are really interesting from a toxicology perspective, especially since we find some of these substances in literally things that people call fentanyl and things that people call MDMA or ecstasy or molly or LSD, any of these drugs, even though you could be saying, hey, I'm just going to have a good psychedelic experience this weekend at this concert, and you might be getting slipped one of these other substances that you're going to have a very different time than what you expected. 
Is there any way for people to know that what they're taking maybe isn't what they expected? Unfortunately, there's not a good solution to that problem at the moment. So I think fentanyl test strips are still important, and I'm not saying don't use them. I, I'm saying that I, that's a program I support. But I think one of the issue is all of these testing applications that we use. So even the ones we use in the hospital are all based on certain molecules. So usually we build like an antibody to a specific molecule and then we add something on it to change color. So like when you use your fentanyl test strip, you put a little of your drug on it and then oftentimes you add a reagent to it and it'll turn color. It'll turn a certain color if there's fentanyl present and it'll turn a different color if there's no fentanyl present or you'll see no color change. The problem is that those antibodies have been crafted against like the fentanyl molecule. And so if it's something else besides fentanyl in there, it is not going to detect it. And so even if it's another opioid, like one of these nitazines, for example, you could try that fentanyl test strip. It'll say it's negative uh, because it's not the same appearance of a molecule. And then you take that drug and you still have an opioid like overdose from that substance. And the same thing happens when you talk about these benzodiazepine-like substances, because we, we have very few ways of testing them, but even when we try to test them in the hospital, our benzodiazepine screen may not come up positive for some of these other molecules that are similar to benzodiazepines, but aren't. Nick, is there anything that as pre-hospital providers, we should be on the lookout for certain historical features, certain way pills looked, certain you know, people or how they got the pills that, that might clue us into, it doesn't have exactly what it says it has. That's a great question. I think it's a little bit tricky overall, but I think the best clue you can get is what did the user expect to get out of that experience? And what I mean is it, did the user expect that they were using something like ecstasy or LSD that everybody knows is going to produce like its own kind of toxidrome. Uh, and now you happen upon them and there's like an opioid like toxidrome that you see. And so finding that disparity between, you know, if friends are able to provide history or something, or if there's other friends that took the same substance and they're feeling a certain way compared to another, that might be a clue that can help us figure out exactly what kind of toxidrome is affecting the patient. And maybe if there's other substances in there, unfortunately, other than that, the Denver police were kind enough to provide us with pictures of the M thirties that contained that pyro substance that we were talking about earlier. And unfortunately those M thirties, I mean, they look I mean, first of all, shockingly like real pills that you could buy from a pharmacy. And second, they look like every other M30 that you would find on the street. And so really, you know, there's not going to be a dead giveaway in terms of the substance you find, but the history I think could be important in terms of helping us elucidate that further. Do you feel like asking if they got it from their same dealer, they took the same dose, it looked like the same pills they had before? Do you feel like any of those are helpful or... I do find that sometimes those are helpful. Unfortunately, you know, it's kind of 50, 50 for me, whether I feel felt like it helped or not. Whenever I get some of these reports, I really appreciate that those questions get asked when there's time to ask them. But I think some of the issue is even that dealer might not know that this batch that I got was different. And so until people start using it, they may not have that feedback yet. And so it can be really tricky to track. And that's what I think makes it so deadly is that people with established relationships with dealers, they trust who are getting what they think is the same substance. The dealer thinks it's the same substance that they've been getting all along. They use the same amount and now they die because it turned out to be 20 times more potent. And so even though they use the same fraction of a pill, they still got themselves into trouble. Nick, has this forced you to change your approach clinically to this toxidrome? 
For me personally, yeah, it definitely has. Uh, and I think within the toxicology world and the emergency medicine world, I think this is a growing conversation, but it, it, a lot of this has to do with OBS periods, meaning like how long we're going to watch somebody in the emergency department, especially after a Narcan wake up. So, you know, you guys as the paramedics do everything perfect. You, you get them breathing again, you bring them in there in that sweet spot of like breathing just perfect. And I leave them in a side room and I say, great, I'm going to watch you for my standard, you know, X number of hours following a Narcan wake up. And if you're still doing okay, I'm going to send you home. The problem is we're starting to get some case reports that maybe our standard practice is not okay with these newer substances, meaning maybe the Narcan is wearing off and we're watching you for a few hours and we think, great, enough of this has to be out of your system that you have to be in the clear, that you're not going to have a rebound effect where you're going to need more Narcan. And then we discharge you and you have a bad outcome because a few hours later after that, you actually did have the classic toxidrome again of the respiratory and CNS depression. And so for me personally, it has changed how long I ob some of these patients, depending on exactly the route of ingestion and everything else like that. Because obviously if you smoke it, snort it, or inject it, you have very rapid absorption. So uh, I may not have to watch some of those people as long, but if you eat it for sure, I watch you much longer than what we would consider classical recommendations at this point. How long are you watching people for? So I, I watch them for at least 12 hours now after if they have an oral ingestion of their opioid and if they had anything that might modify the release of it. So if they swallowed it in a baggie or they swallowed something else that might change how fast I think the opioid is going to release, I watch them for a day. What if they also ate a really good hospital sandwich? I do feel that a good DG sandwich cures just about anything. It does. It really does for so many patients. Oh, okay. So that's the new scary drugs. Uh, but Maybe take us back to, uh, this is reality, but what's the most common stuff we're still seeing out there? Man, I mean, we just see a lot of meth. And I, I realize that there's listeners from all over the country and, you know, our our brothers and sisters more on the East Coast, I think, are dealing with this slightly less than we are. But I was looking at the most recent statistics a couple of months ago, and we see that meth use amongst teens amongst adults and meth-related crimes are only on the rise essentially from Colorado westward. And so even to this day, uh, the amount of meth that's being used is staggering. And in, and in Colorado alone, over a million kids have tried meth within the last year when they did a recent survey, which is wild to me and absolutely a drug that we're going to continue to see uh, on the streets. Uh, and, and that's why I think it's sometimes worth talking about it because it's one that a lot of us in certain areas are familiar with, and I think there's still some nuance to uncover there. And then in other areas that aren't as accustomed to meth, we we might see some influx. First off, I just want to say that is sad. That is incredibly sad. You know, high school aged people trying methamphetamine. I mean, that's terrible. It's absolutely wild. You mentioned some nuances there that you think are still important. Can you tell us about those? Well, I, I think, you know, if you're used to seeing meth on a daily basis, I think everybody sort of has that meth patient in mind. You know, the person that's super agitated, that's not really responding to what you're doing, who has these, you know, wild vital signs with tachycardia and hypertension, is sweaty, you know, is trying to tear you and the ambulance apart. And, you know, it's taken 12 firefighters to hold down. And I think we've seen that end of the spectrum as well as, you know, the other end, which is, you know, ah, I've got some tachycardia and some hypertension. I'm a little agitated, but, or a little anxious, but outside of that, I'm, I'm, I can, I can follow commands. I can be redirectable. And, you know, you can kind of guide me to your stretcher and take me to the hospital. And I think contrasting those two flavors of presentations is really interesting when we look at the the neurotransmitters in the brain that come along with these kinds of presentations. And so meth actually shows this really interesting 
dose-dependent response, meaning that sort of at lower doses, the predominant neurotransmitters you tend to dump out are norepinephrine and epinephrine. And those should be well familiar to you because you give a lot of these medications, right? And so you give epi, you're going to get that hypertension, you're going to get that tachycardia to come along with it. As you start getting into these higher and higher doses, what we see is we start to see dopamine be the predominant molecule that's dumped out. And the reason that's interesting is because, you know, one of our theories with like psychosis in general, like schizophrenia and a lot of these other psychiatric conditions is it's a problem of too much dopamine in the brain, which is why a lot of our antipsychotics like good old haloperidol or droperidol have a lot of dopamine blockade because we think that excess dopamine is what's causing the problem. So now superimpose that onto the meth patient. If a meth patient has taken a little bit of methamphetamine, then predominantly what they're dumping out is norepi and epi. And that's going to make it jittery. That's going to make it anxious. And it's going to raise your vital signs, but you're still able to communicate for the most part. You can still hopefully interpret commands. You can still understand that another person is talking to you. And oftentimes you can respond to questions and hopefully comply with medical assistance so that you can get better. But if you've taken a lot of methamphetamine, this is where we see the dopamine predominance. And so these are the people that you just can't get control of who are going absolutely wild. And it's because this sort of meth psychosis mimics what we think is one of the underlying phenomenons in like regular psychosis that we see that's not related to drugs. And where that nuance I think becomes interesting is that if it's within your protocols, I want to empower you to feel like you can use antipsychotics in these patients as a first line therapy to try to help with the mental status more than anything else. And so if it's within your ability to give something like a haloperidol or droperidol to these patients, what we've actually seen a trend in the literature is that these patients oftentimes require less sedation overall and are able to be discharged from the emergency department faster because they haven't been snowed by a bunch of benzos that have increased how sleepy they are. Now, that being said, there's plenty of meth patients that need a combination of both or a ton of benzos on top of the antipsychotic you use. But I, even for the like absolutely tearing the ambulance apart people, I think it's it's interesting to, as your first line, use a uh, antipsychotic and then very swiftly move to a benzo if you need that extra control. Nick is bringing up an idea here that goes somewhat against medical dogma. And so I wanted to touch on this for just a second. For years, expert opinion has been to avoid antipsychotics and sympathomimetic toxicity. You see, antipsychotics limit heat dissipation, and given that we know hyperthermia is the number one predictor of mortality in these patients, the fear is we might worsen or increase this risk. But at the same time, we know that dopamine is a main driver of the complications we see with meth. So antidopaminergic agents like droperidol make sense. There was a recent review article from 2019 that looked at the best available evidence on the topic. Now, admittedly, it's not great evidence, but it is the best available evidence we have. And looking at this evidence as a whole, it suggests that antipsychotics are likely safe and effective in sympathomimetic patients. Furthermore, there was a paper that compared droperidol to lorazepam and time to sedation when used for sympathomimetic-related agitation. It found that time to sedation was quicker with droperidol and patients required less repeat dosing. But I will say due to lorazepam's slower onset, I actually tend to use midazolam in these patients, so I don't actually know how to apply this data to my clinical practice other than to say droperidol was effective and safe. The only paper I could find that included midazolam and droperidol looked at using a combination of both droperidol and midazolam 
in comparison to just droperidol alone or just olanzapine alone. And it found that the combination of the medications sedated patients faster, although there was a higher incidence of oxygen desaturation. So although use of this medication in combination with a benzodiazepine may be very effective, you do need to be aware of the increased rates of complication and be on the lookout for those. Monitor your patients appropriately, resuscitate your patients appropriately, and place them on oxygen if they need it. Finally, when looking at a review of animal studies, antipsychotics such as haloperidol and droperidol have been shown to decrease mortality and rates of seizures in animals that were given lethal doses of cocaine and meth. Albeit this decrease was to a lesser degree than was found with the benzodiazepines in in separate studies. So we will post links to all of these articles as well as an editorial piece on this topic in the show notes in the description below. And you can also find the full show notes on our website, emspodcast.com. I think it kind of comes back to the old adage that I love in toxicology and just treating the patient that you see in front of you and the signs and symptoms that you see in front of you, as you talked about the psychosis being related to a lot of that excess dopamine and, and haloperidol or droperidol being able to block some of that dopamine. So if you have kind of predominant psychosis that you're trying to treat, then your antidopaminergics might be your most helpful. Whereas if you're seeing that hypertension, diaphoretic, super tachycardic, that is your neuroepi, epi that may be better addressed by your, your benzodiazepines. You're exactly right. I once had this patient that utterly destroyed a public restroom. And uh, he said that because there was a snake in the restroom and, you know, get him kind of isolated and stuff. And police had to break the door down. And I was like, did you, you know, Standard questioning, like ultimately, can't, well, I use you. I used meth yesterday. And I was like, yeah, that's 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 your snake, buddy. Like <laughs> that's where it's coming from. <laughs> exactly. And it may have felt like yesterday, but it was probably one hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Nick, I have a question regarding a patient that is probably equally as prevalent, but less talked about in EMS circles. And that's the meth washout patient. And what, if anything, should be watched out for mm. or treated with these folks? Because we definitely, in in the pre-hospital context, get people that took meth, you know, yesterday, and now they're in front of us for whatever reason, and we know this is a thing. We know that sometimes they're agitated. Sometimes they're psychotic. Sometimes they're just really scared and honestly wanting our help. So can you go into that a little bit? What's going on and what's the best course of action? Absolutely. That's a really, really good question. So I think the first part of it is the washed out syndrome you bring up. And so this was a syndrome first described in cocaine users, but we think it applies to methamphetamine as well, which is essentially you've taken a bunch of a substance that has stimulated your brain to dump out all its neurotransmitters in a very short amount of time. And that's what gives you the high. That's what gives you the sensation of using the methamphetamine. After that, your brain has used 
every neurotransmitter it had left for the most part. And so you've forced your brain to dump it all out. And it takes time for your brain to replenish a lot of those neurotransmitters to bring them up to more normal levels. So the first part of it is simply, I used it all up and I don't have a big reserve left. And so it takes me, you know, a day or so before I'm going to be able to build those all back up to a point where my brain's going to be functioning normally again. And what that normally looks like is people that are very sleepy, people who are very tired and people who can have this odd cognition because they just aren't processing like they normally would because they're just almost depleted of neurotransmitters is one way you can think about it. And so in the one hand, there's sort of like the acute washed out period where, Hey, I just used every single neurotransmitter I have. I have none left. And so now I'm very tired. I need a DG sandwich. I need a nap. And so there's that patient. There's also sort of the long-term effects of methamphetamine. And there's some terrifying and fascinating things about it. So regardless of drug you take, you are going to affect your receptors, right? So you're going to either, uh, for the most part, start down-regulating a lot of receptors because they're getting hammered with drugs. So just like, you know, a opioid user can use steadily bigger and bigger doses of opioids without becoming apneic, same a methamphetamine user has to use bigger and bigger doses of methamphetamine to get the same response because a lot of the receptors that meth is binding to are being down-regulated. I mean, there's less of them over time because that's how your brain is adapting to this new chemical milieu you've created. It's, it's saying, okay, I'm getting way too stimulated by these receptors, so I'm going to make less of them so that I can try to bring my brain back into balance. And so as we see that over time, when people start washing out from meth and they start withdrawing from meth, they can have all sorts of interesting cognitive changes because there's a change in the receptors and the the amount that's there. And now there's not as much drug as there was before. So until they do meth again, they might not feel normal because they've changed their receptors to just expect a certain concentration of meth. And if that certain concentration of meth is not there, then they are going to feel very abnormal. There's even an extension of this. There's actually this very interesting research where there's parts of the brain, especially in the dopamine reward pathways, that are permanently destroyed. So when we do uh, autopsy and MRI, it's not like some other substances where when you quit it, your brain eventually goes back to totally the way it was before. We can actually demonstrate with methamphetamine that there's certain areas, especially in your reward and dopamine pathways that, that die, unfortunately, completely. And once these brain cells go, they're never coming back. And this might be a theory as to why it is so hard to stop methamphetamine use. Because if you've destroyed some of your dopamine reward pathway and then you stop using meth, you literally will never be able to get that same level of reward that you could before. And you know, I I use reward as a very general term, but this is even like feeling like you had a good day. You know, has to do with the amount of dopamine you release and this whole intrinsic reward pathway. And if you've permanently destroyed parts of this, until you get another substance on board to artificially increase the amount of that pathway you're seeing, you will never feel the same again, which is absolutely tragic. Yeah, it's so sad. Nick, wrap this up. Take this home for us. Summarize what what you want our listeners to take home. 
think overall there's a couple of main points is one is we're seeing all these wild new chemicals that are seeping their way into sort of the more classic drugs that people use. And so even when somebody tells you, Hey, I was just using Molly or LSD or one of these other xenobiotics. If they have a toxidrome that looks like opioid in front of you, as all of you are going to do try Narcan because there might've been something else slipped into that medication. And again, as Ross pointed out earlier, that is useful information to pass on to us because that might help us make a decision as to what to do next with these patients and how long to watch them. Remember that test strips and sort of the other risk mitigation strategies that we're trying that revolve around testing of drugs will not work for certain of these xenobiotics. So when you come across your raver or somebody else that says, no, I tested this for fentanyl, I know it's not in there, that doesn't matter because there could be another analog that is binding to the opioid receptor. Remember that you should always give or try Narcan in a patient with the classic opioid of toxidrome of CNS, respiratory depression. And if you are not getting a response, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not an opioid. It just means you need to move on to the next phase in your algorithm because it either is not an opioid like an alpha two agent or other agents that can mimic this, or it might bind so tightly to the receptor that the amount of Narcan needed is not realistic to give. Finally, I think when you Remember that we all see a ton of meth, at least on the more Western coast. And if you have not seen meth before, I encourage you to try antipsychotics as your first line therapy when people are having psychosis. But I agree with swiftly moving to benzodiazepines to get control of agitated patients and or to fix vital signs when somebody is too hypertensive or tachycardic. And remember, stay safe out there. talking way too long anyway. I got way distracted. I, I, I've been drinking. I apologize. <laughs>